Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Dagena Dor, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we're really honored to have Professor Sabine Fristug on the show to talk about her new book, Gender and Sexuality in Modern Japan, published by the Cambridge University Press in 2022. Um, so just to introduce Professor Fristug a little bit, um, she is a professor and Koichi Takashima Chair in Japanese Cultural Studies in the Department of East Asian Languages and Cultural Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. In addition to her most recent book, which we will discuss in detail today in this episode, Professor Frustuck has published many books, edit volumes, and articles on the topics of gender, militarism, and children in modern Japan. I actually had the pleasure of interviewing her for the New Books Network in 2019 on her book, Playing War, Children and the Paradoxes of Modern Militarism in Japan. Um, It's a fantastic cultural history of the connections between childhood and militarism. Please go ahead and and have a listen when you get a chance. Um, Two other books by Professor Frustuck that our listeners will find interesting and maybe relevant to today's discussions are... Uh, Uneasy Warriors, Gender, Memory, and Popular Culture in the Japanese Army from 2007, which is an ethnography on the ambivalent status and condition of Japan's contemporary military, and Colonizing Sex, Sexuality, and Social Control in Modern Japan from 2003, uh, which is a social historical study of the creation, formation, and application of a science of sex from the late 19th through the mid-20th century. Professor Frustuck, thank you so much and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Great. Um, I, I know we've already done this before when we recorded um, the previous episode, but can you um, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, specifically how you became interested in East Asian studies in general, but particularly in the issues of gender and sexuality in modern Japan? Certainly. I um, grew up in Austria, in a very small country in Europe, and traveling was always among my family's favorite pastimes. So when I left home to attend the University of Vienna, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to study, but I did know that I wanted to study a culture that was far from home. And uh, eventually I settled on Japan and did as uh, minors, uh, philosophy and sociology. This was the mid-1980s. I got into the university in 1985. 
so this was the beginning of the HIV AIDS crisis. Uh, Foucault had just died, um, had also been uh, just translated into German. People like Michel Serre, uh, the five senses, uh, had written the five senses. So everyone was really uh, talking about the philosophy and history of the body, sex and sexuality, less about gender. And I think this is an important distinction. But in philosophy, among friends in the media, uh, sexuality really was uh, one of the core topics of conversation. And in Vienna, the mid-80s was really also the beginning of an out gay and LGBT public culture. So I was uh, in part interested in philosophy, uh, but I never really found philosophy in Japan that interesting. Uh, but I was interested in the study of the body, of sexuality, modernity. And so I wrote a dissertation and then a first book on the history of sexology, as you just mentioned, uh, this is called Colonizing Sex. And so that got me into that particular field. After that, uh, I wrote other books. Um, um, and of course, uh, the military was part of that first book um, because it was really the military and young men in particular whose sexuality the state was uh, very much interested in uh, modern society. So that resulted then in Uneasy Warriors and um, my increasing interest in uh, masculinity and the study of masculinity. And I found that uh, there were a number of blind spots in the literature that had to do with manhood and masculinity on the one hand and with generation and children on the other. And so that led then to my co-edited volume with Anne Walthall that's titled Recreating Japanese Men, and more recently, as you mentioned, Playing War, Children and the Paradoxes of Modern Militarism in Japan. And then uh, Lucy Reimer of Cambridge University called and invited me to write uh, Gender and Sexuality in Modern Japan. Thank you. And oh, and I also forgot to mention in your introduction, congratulations on becoming editor for the Journal of Japanese Studies. Oh, thank you so much. Yes, this looks like uh, it's going to be fun. Very exciting news. Great. Um, so uh, please correct me if I'm um, incorrect. I made a mistake here, but um, unlike your other uh, books, the, the ones that we sort of previously kind of discussed uh, shortly, uh, which were facing... Um, academic audience, this book, Gender and Sexuality in Modern Japan, seems to be more public-friendly and, and facing a wider audience. So tell us a little bit how you became interested in writing this book project and, and how the kind of project began. Yes, so you are absolutely correct. This is the first uh, book I've ever written that is designed particularly for readers who are either not familiar with Japan or not or, or are familiar with Japan but not with issues of sex, gender, and sexuality. And so the kind of general reader you just uh, referred to is sort of a, an, an informed reader but not either in the gender and sexuality field or not in the Japan field. So I'm hoping that um, scholars of gender and sexuality elsewhere will pick up this book to educate themselves on the Japan uh, history and uh, current situation. And perhaps 
scholars of uh, Japan who are invested and uh, engaged in other disciplines and methodologic uh, me- method- methodologies uh, will be interested in uh, taking a look at this book as a very short and introductory perspective on sex, gender, and sexuality in Japan. It was interesting. This was, you know, when uh, Lucy Reimer proposed this to me, I I was interested because it was a different kind of book for me to write. And I always like to do something else with a new book project. And in this case, it was writing a different way than than most of my other work, which is uh, very scholarly and, and as you say, uh, specific to disciplines and methodologies. Hmm. And um, so let's talk about, you know, sex and sexuality and gender in the Japanese language, right? So terminology used in the Japanese language to discuss this issue, these uh, issues actually have, you know, particular histories of their own. Um, so maybe we can contextualize what these terms are first a little bit for our, you know, more general audience who might not know um, the language. Uh, so what words are actually used in the Japanese language to refer to sex, gender, and, and the beyond? What kind of nuances do they carry? That's really a very, very complicated question. But uh, in the book, I, I address this very briefly. The book, of course, maintains overall that sex, gender, and sexuality are sociocultural constructs that have historically evolved. And that's perhaps never has never been more dramatically the case than during the modern era. In Japan in the past, uh, the Japanese word for sex, say, signified an amalgamation of biology, nature, and culture. So our more recent distinction that we make between sex and gender, particularly in English, makes no sense historically in, in the Japanese context. At the time, Few uh, were invested in separating one meaning from the other, even though a number of other Japanese characters had been used that could variably signify what we today refer to as sex, gender, or sexuality, or even character or nature. And so when we turn to one of these modern moments, I, I came across a little dictionary of Japan's sexual morals and customs from 1929, for instance, that included a great many terms that signified sexual relations of one sort or another. For instance, ayayigasa, which literally means shared umbrella, uh, that referred to lovers, typically involving a prostitute, or okefuse, uh, signifying the Edo era criminal punishment of a man seeking entertainment district pleasure without having the money to pay for it. Um, So in that dictionary, 1929, there were lots and lots of words, word composites listed that involved the character for iro or color. But of course, at that time, that signified uh, erotic. And so we have lots of words for that that clearly uh, signal eroticism or sexuality, but none of them involved the character for se, for sex, gender or sexuality. So this is really the moment when say or sex becomes the character for that becomes slowly but eventually exclusively associated with sex and sexuality. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating looking at the vocabulary, looking at terminology and the histories of, of 
etymology, right? You see the creation of, of sex, of various kinds of sexuality and gender. Um, and your book actually examines gender and sexuality in modern Japan through these three um, kind of perspectives. Right? So you, you, you tell us that there are the individual experiences, institutional mechanisms, and sociocultural inflected politics. And in the introduction chapter, you explain that all these chapters in the book um, balance these three perspectives um, and further share three analytical sensibilities uh, which are one transnational historical study, two interdisciplinary study of sex, gender, and sexuality, and thirdly a flexible intersectionality. Uh, so, please tell us a little bit more about these analytical choices that you're making in the book, and and how they might help the readers to think about gender and sexuality uh, in modern Japan in a more kind of nuanced way. Well, let me begin with the interrelated individual experiences and institutional mechanisms in politics. That was a narrative decision, really. And that decision was based on the assumption that most readers, and I'm thinking, of course, of particularly undergraduate students who might encounter the book in their classes, most such readers enjoy imagining a particular person navigating institutions and politics. So whereas in my earlier work, I was very invested in describing public discourse and political institutions and so on and so forth. In this book, I try to really mobilize often also so-called ordinary people in addition to some key players, right? The history of gender and sexuality in Japan is, is a very, very productive, very uh, energetic field. So key players are relatively uh, well known. But what I was trying to do here is also to bring in ordinary people who haven't left really a trace in the historical record. But how does sort of the average, the random young man navigate sex, gender and sexuality in the 1920s, for instance? And so that was, that was a narrative decision. And so for for the book, it matters how a particular young man with a disability, for instance, experienced the mandatory military physical exam, how another young man got a certificate of fitness despite bad eyesight simply because his father was an officer. And it matters how the examiners reacted to one particular individual who happened to have the sexual markers of males and females. So these are not individuals who we know by name, but we have records that describe their cases. And so I was trying to bring that into the book. Um, the decision to combine a flexible intersectionality with transnationality and interdisciplinarity was more difficult to maintain throughout the book, but it was important for me to at least signal in this direction because modern and contemporary Japan has always looked out into the world. And its modernity and present is, of course, interconnected in ways many other places are as well. And so I've always been driven by the desire to identify problems and have understood the methodologies different disciplines have to offer as tools to identify and address them rather than being constrained by what one specific discipline or one specific methodology prescribe as a possible question to ask. And so I'm here very much, I'm siding very much with uh, scholars like Peter Kutzenstein, who is a political scientist who speaks of analytical eclecticism, 
or with the late philosopher Paul Feyerabend, who objected to any single prescriptive method, because in his views, science would benefit most from a dose of theoretical anarchism. He was a little bit more glamorous about how he described his theoretical choices. But but these are the kinds of perspectives that inform my desire to really borrow and use different methodologies uh, throughout this book. And it's really partly also because we don't experience the world in, in a disciplinary fashion, right? We see, we remember, we misremember, we experience our own lives and observe others and so on. So one of my agendas has always also been to include images in my books, not as illustrations, but as another way of understanding, another way, another clue to a particular kind of phenomenon or event so one of the, the perspectives on discipline I really like is how Wieseltier phrased real understanding as the opposite of homesickness, where you take on a mindset wherein questions can be raised, the disciplinary boundaries and practices make invisible. And so I do think of some of my work as really making visible blind spots in more than one disciplines. And so it is where challenging the disciplinary order of the world we live in uh, should prompt us to shake up the bag of questions we allow ourselves to ask. And so, you know, when when I write about identity, uh, I mean disciplinary identity. And of course, in that same vein, I've never really understood why people ask whether I'm a historian or an anthropologist or sociologist. What could that answer possibly reveal they don't see in my scholarship? And so in that, I only see a question uh, such as, who are you like? And so such a disciplinary question is always exclusive rather than, than engaging in my mind. Yeah, thank you. That's really uh, beautifully put uh, that we don't experience the world in a disciplinary way, right? Um, that's really, it's a really obvious, but really important point to make. Um, um, so we briefly kind of, you briefly mentioned uh, your intended audience uh, in the previous answer, but um, I want to kind of, you know, explore this this part of the book a little bit further. Um, I, I love how your book is structured. Um, you can actually uh, read the chapters together, uh, but also separately, right? Individually. So I can see myself, for example, assigning individual chapters for specific topics in class. Um, I also really appreciate the super helpful recommendations and relevant literary and visual cultural works that you provide at the end of each chapter. Um, so I, I guess, like you said, right, you mainly had undergrads um, or I guess the general public who are interested in the issues of modern Japan or gender or sexuality or all of them together. Um, but how do you kind of recommend the book to be read and taught in the classroom? I have a number of different ideas about them. I imagine depending on what kind of course and what kind of scholar picks up the book to potentially include in their course curriculum, I can see them starting with reading a chapter and then going to 
literary examples or film examples, but I can also see going the other way around. Uh, perhaps if somebody taught a course about sexuality in literature, for instance, they might uh, put one of the literary examples on their syllabus and offer the chapter as a, a voluntary reading or as their own background reading to the literary example, particularly if they are not specialists of Japanese literature. And, and the films here have really chosen films that are uh, easily accessible and available with subtitles. Of course, there are so many choices in the Japanese literary and film archive, but I've made these choices to ensure that instructors who don't have uh, special access to Japanese films or don't have students who understand Japanese uh, be able to enjoy and analyze and interpret uh, those as well. And some of these films are really very, very engaging. I can imagine, for instance, screening one of the films and then engaging the film with a particular chapter or putting the film into the historical context that the chapter provides. But beyond these various com combinations of how I imagine the book could be used, I hope also that the way the book is put together really engages all student sensibilities. Of course, we're teaching students today who are already deeply immersed in visual culture, in other digital formats, and hopefully also in, in the reading of literature. And so I think particularly in undergraduate teaching, it can be very, very invigorating to have different kinds of voices at work in one and the same class session, for instance, rather than separating one from the other. Fantastic, fantastic. Um, so let's go into the chapters a little bit. And, and chapter one of the book uh, entitled Building the Nation and Modern Manhood um, traces the negotiations of manhood and masculinities in Japan from the late 19th century to the present. And it's interesting that you chose this this uh, striking image right, as the cover of the book, um, this modern kabuki actor slash film actor holding uh, a baby, right? Um, so that says a lot about, you know, this kind of modern sensibilities of, of manhood in the Japanese context. So from the idea of the soldier, let's say at the height of the war, to the idea of salaryman, um, to the more recent phenomena of the NEETs, right? The N-E-E-Ts. How have the standards of modern manhood or masculinity changed in Japan? And, and who decided on these standards and how were they measured? These are some of the things that you talked about in the chapter. Really, really fascinating. And also lastly, who benefited from these hegemonic masculinities? I know it's a lot of questions, but... Yes, so these are these are very interesting questions, and of course, this is like all the other chapters, a short chapter, uh, but I will try to speak about uh, to your questions a little bit. Uh, first, let me go back to the cover image uh, that you uh, kindly mentioned. I'm really, really pleased with the cover image, and I chose it. I saw it originally on the cover of the Japanese edition of Harper's Bazaar in, in one edition in 2018. And it really struck me, not because I knew this actor, I didn't, um, but because I realized that it's really, really rare 
in Japan as well as in the U.S. and I suppose many, many other uh, societies around the world uh, to see a man with a baby on a cover of any kind of publication, um, but particularly also in this particular pose. It's like a almost like a Madonna pose. And when I first showed the image to a couple of friends, one didn't even realize that he was looking at a man, not a woman. And so it was very interesting to me. I also thought about the fact that particularly in the Japan field, when we look at books on gender and sexuality or feminism, a lot of the covers on this book, on these books, have either a beautiful early 20th century modern girl or or new women kind of uh, covers, or uh, they have very clearly identifiable as LGDB uh, representations kinds of covers. And the one thing one hardly ever sees is just a heteronormative kind of man with uh, a baby in a kind of caring kind of situation. And so I was very, very uh, taken with this image. But to go to your questions about the chapter, yes, so I have this rough structure that I believe governs uh, manhood and masculinity in modern contemporary Japan. And if we looked at it in a historical trajectory, it's pretty clear that in the late 19th century, the military did a lot of the measuring and the defining of ideal manhood. And very clearly, uh, in, in fact, very literally, by prescribing that every young man undergo the military physical exam. So you have it right there. It's that these exams result in data that are uh, becoming increasingly complex with an increasing number of conditions and uh, characteristics of these young men, men's bodies until 1945, essentially, when, of course, the Japanese empire uh, is defeated and the war, Asia-Pacific War, the Second World War ends with the uh, defeat of Japan and also with the dismantling of the Imperial Japanese Army and Navy. In 1946, the new constitution prescribes uh, for, Japan, uh, for Japan a commitment to anti-militarism, to pacifism in, in its Article 9. And of course, that creates a moment of reflection and disruption or rupture in terms of ideal masculinity. And what we see in the second half of the 20th century is the rise of a very different kind of ideal, namely of the white-collar worker, the salaryman. Uh, this is not to say that salaryman didn't exist early in the 20th century. They did. In fact, the 1920s are probably the moment of the emergence of salaryman, but only in the post Second World War era of the late uh, of the second half of the 20th century does the salaryman become the kind of iconic, almost hegemonic mode of masculinity. And what I mean by that is this. In the second half of the 20th century, increasingly, and this is definitely the case at least until the 1980s and 1990s, when the bubble economy burst and we have another moment of self-reflection and uh, instability in terms of masculinity, 
Um, but prior to that, what it means, for instance, if I may uh, share a little story from my own experience when I was a student in Japan during that time, uh, working as a waitress in a restaurant, uh, when the chefs of that restaurant, who were, of course, dressed in their chef clothes in the kitchen, when they went home late at night, uh, close to midnight, they changed into suits, into regular business suits. And so at what one point I asked one of them why they would, on the way home, change into a blue or otherwise dark business suit when they were not going to work into an office when it was after work for them and they were just going home. And so one of them uh, said very clearly that on the train in the public sphere of urban Japan, it would be the most sort of reputable and mainstream and in, in some way invisible way uh, to be as a man, namely to appear to all the other people on the train and other uh, means of transportation to be a salaryman, even though he wasn't. And so that kind of image, of course, is not unchallenged throughout the late 20th century. Of course, we have lots of other men who are not desiring to look or be salarymen. Uh, academics typically are one such a group of men during that time, but the salaryman is is certainly an ideal and a model that is then hailed uh, during that time in Japanese popular writings as the modern samurai. And so that language is adopted. And here too, it's very, very significant, I think, that it's not the modern soldier, it's the modern samurai. And so even at the moment of embrace of the salaryman as an ideal, public culture in Japan is very, very careful to reach back into the pre-modern martial world because at that moment, of course, uh, samurai culture has been turned into a popular cultural sphere. There's no ethics or other kinds of unpleasant possibilities associated with uh, samurai. And so that that comes again at the beginning of the 1990s, that uh, ideal comes to an end really with the recession, with the burst of the bubble economy. And that is then exacerbated in 2008 with the financial crisis. And it's a little bit unclear, depending on who we listen to, some scholars and some ordinary men and women, as we refer to them, themselves say, well, the diversification of masculinity of the late 90s and this century in particular is a result of the decline of um, the economy and the salaryman, or perhaps the the diversification of masculinity was already at work, and then the economy was hit by a recession and, and so on. But in any case, uh, these two uh, movements were definitely intertwined. And so in contemporary Japan today in the 21st century, uh, we have, of course, um, another generation of individuals who are less taken by the salaryman ideal, even though a lot of Japanese men are, of course, uh, white collar businessmen still, but we have lots of other life course possibilities 
uh, for men, and many of them embrace such, uh, including some being much more engaged in at home uh, with uh, child rearing and and spending time with their families, even though one of the interesting details in Japan, of course, is that Japan today leads the world in fully paid paternity leave of six months. But even in 2017, only one man in 20 took that leave. And so uh, one of the interesting aspects of gender inequality in Japan is precisely that despite some uh, legal possibilities, men by and large contribute much less in the household and uh, with child rearing than men in many other uh, societies. Uh, so, so it's interesting how these, uh, the diversification of manhood is in full swing, uh, but it has not impacted heteronormative households as much as one might imagine. And then, of course, we also have a whole group of young men, primarily young men. It's not only a male phenomenon, but it's primarily young men who have turned away from mainstream society altogether, who uh, avoid social interaction. And um, those are referred to as hikikomori and are in many ways, uh, perceived to be young men who can't uh, find their way into mainstream society, or it's their way of refusing to be incorporated into mainstream society they perceive as hostile and problematic. Uh, but we also have, of course, the needs that you already mentioned, uh, not in training, education, and not pursuing a particular profession. Um, and so the diversification of manhood and masculinity in in the last uh, two or three decades has, of course, brought about uh, both a liberation from old models, but also new insecurities uh, for men themselves and for society in general. Thank you. Thank you for that really detailed answer. And, and the following chapters turn to women who um, have always struggled for um, the rights and the spaces to define their own womanhood, right? So chapter two, uh, controlling reproduction and motherhood, you show that women in modern Japan have always kind of tried to define motherhood for themselves and take control for of reproduction um, and how their struggles are war often at odds with Japan's nation building and empire building efforts, um, very much like women elsewhere in the world and and women in the United States more recently. Um, How has the control over reproduction and motherhood changed since the 19th century in the Japanese context? And what does this mean for them? What is at stake here for Japanese women? I think one of the really central shifts in modern and contemporary history. And this doesn't go only for Japan, but I think Japan was probably early making that shift, is from concerns around 1900 that very much centered on how to have fewer children, what can be done, what kind of legal, medical, social possibilities were available to have fewer children to a hundred years later, roughly a hundred years later, to a very different question, namely, how does 
a society like Japan encourage young women to have more children, which is the question of our time, right? So we went from uh, in Japanese history uh, from from the desire to reduce the number of children per household, per family, and so on and so forth, to the puzzle of today, namely that lots and lots of women don't want to have any children, and if they do have children, then it's only one child. Uh, that, in my mind, is the big story of is one big story of the modern and contemporary period, which is why I separated. Uh, the issue of reproduction and motherhood from the question of womanhood uh, at large. And so, of course, the forces that govern this transition are multiple. And students of modern history will, of course, be aware that the Japanese state in the late 19th century and uh, into the 20th century uh, was very much invested and increasingly invested in, in increasing the Japanese population. So we have uh, one of the very interesting uh, conflicts that, of course, emerge is that on the one hand, we have individual households and families who understand that fewer children would contribute to an improvement of their living standard, the improvement of their circumstances in all kinds of ways. And at the same time, uh, particularly as we reach the beginning of the 20th century and the 1920s, 30s, early 40s, we have a state that uh, is invested in increasing uh, the number of children, particularly, of course, the number of boys who the state imagines to be then serving in uh, empire building and uh, war. And so when uh, women, particularly at the beginning around 1900, right, there, there are a lot of uh, policy changes, even in the late 19th century, that require women to report pregnancies, for instance. So what women did uh, to limit the number of children per family was uh, particularly the poorer, the more often this was the case, uh, they either killed their babies or abandoned their babies. And many of them engaged in various practices, often with the help of a midwife to abort their fetuses. And so it's in the late 19th century that the state comes in, and this is the police in particular, uh, that becomes invested in controlling and observing and pregnancies and women in particular, and ensuring that such didn't happen. This was not primarily done for reasons of religion or morality or a particular notion of what constitutes a human being. It was done in order to uh, feed into public policy that was designed to increase the number of the Japanese population. At some point, there was this plan to increase the number of the population to 100 million and was part of that. Now, of course, when we think about what kind of possibilities did women have or families have to control the, the control conception, these were very limited until uh, the 20s and the 1930s when it was, in fact, uh, Japanese doctors who invented new methods of contraception. One very important one was invented by Ogino Kyusaku, 
who studied the menstrual cycle and doing that gave him a sense of uh, particularly fertile and thus also particularly uh, infertile days in the menstrual cycle. Uh, so that was the Ogino method, or in uh, in the Anglo-American world, it's usually referred to as the temperature method. Um, we also have Ota Tendre, very, very important uh, doctor and medical researcher who invented the IUD. And so there are advancements in terms of contraception uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. And of course, condoms had been around for many uh, years, but... Uh, condoms were still a very, were a contraceptive device that was relatively expensive. Originally, condoms were made of sheep intestines and were supposed to be washed and reused. And it was only later at the beginning of the 20th century when they were also produced, particularly by a company that is still around, namely Okamoto, uh, that produced condoms. So when uh, women and men campaigned for the legal for birth for legal birth control what they campaigned for uh, far into the 20th century was primarily for the legalization of abortion so birth control the birth control movement was deeply invested into the legalization of abortion uh, in part because under other contraceptives were either uh, not as available or were only available in urban areas of Japan. And so, and that was, of course, uh, very radical because it run against uh, public policy of increasing the number of births uh, in Japan at the time until the end of the Second World War. It was, in fact, one of Japan's most prominent feminists, namely Hiratsuka Daicho, who proposed one of the first uh, eugenic laws. And so in, in the context of uh, the birth control movement, one of the concerns was, of course, healthy births and healthy babies. And because sexually transmitted diseases at the time, um, of course, had severe effects on people's offspring, the birth control movement was intertwined with a eugenics movement. Uh, this this uh, uh, law that she proposed wasn't successful. It wasn't implemented. That came much later in a different form in 1941. But uh, birth control and eugenics were closely intertwined. And in the Japanese case, not so much intertwined in uh, with the intention to uh, to prevent certain people of certain ethnicities or races to uh, from uh, procreation, as was the case in the United States, for instance, but to prevent people, men who suffered from uh, venereal diseases, from uh, being able to marry and, and have children. So birth control was a very, very critical issue at the time. And for several generations of Japanese women, uh, the possibilities beyond abortion uh, were very, very limited until much later. Uh, then, of course, in nineteen in the nineteen sixties, the pill uh, became available. And whereas in other parts of the world, particularly the United States and also uh, in in much of Europe, the pill was celebrated as a huge moment of liberation for women. 
um, because it promised not just the possibility of having sex with whoever one wanted, whenever one wanted, and uh, not become pregnant, but also because, of course, that in, in many uh, societies, uh, that also allowed women to take control of contraception entirely without even having a conversation uh, in a heterosexual relationship with a partner. Um, interestingly, however, in Japan, and this remains the case to this very day, the pill was not such a big deal in terms of changing the landscape of what kind of contraceptives uh, people used. And this was in part uh, due to the fact that of Japan, uh, Japan had a very high quality condom industry at the time. And so um, uh, condom, condom use was very established, uh, including in heterosexual relations and marriages and so on and so forth. But also for another reason that had to do with the pharmaceutical industry and the public trust in the pharmaceutical industry and the governing bodies, uh, Japanese uh, political governing bodies of the pharmaceutical industry. And so there was a, a comparative distrust in both of these uh, sets of entities, which made Japanese women more hesitant than others uh, around the world to actually switch to using the pill. And even, um, you know, with lighter dose pills in more recent decades, that didn't change as much as one uh, can observe in other parts of the world. Um, one of the phenomena that um, have uh, received some attention in, in Western societies, namely adoption, as one of the ways of countering the demographic crisis in Japan today, of course, um, is also something that is less popular in Japan. And this too is actually very interesting because Japan has a tradition of adoption that goes way back historically and was not so much governed by the desire to have more children, but the desire to have an heir. So historically, Japanese families did routinely adopt male individuals so that they would have an heir. But despite of that historical tradition, uh, Japanese um, laws that govern adoption are relatively uh, strict. One can't be older than 40 years old, for instance. And, and so adoption is not a popular uh, method of having children for uh, people today who either can't have children of their own or decide too late in life that they want to have children. So we have a huge transition, as I mentioned, from investment in how to reduce the number of uh, children to contemporary struggles uh, to uh, encourage women to have children at all. And those have been, in some prefectures, uh, uh, prefectural governments have been more successful than in other places uh, to provide uh, daycare, to provide support, uh, to encourage men in heterosexual households to help more at home. But by and large, uh, these policies have been relatively unsuccessful, as we've just seen that the current birth rate is, again, the lowest Japan has ever experienced. Mm -hmm. Um, thank you for that really extended answer again. And um, I guess related to that, in Chapter 3, Defining Womanhood, we see 
women of different identities or different、uh, affiliations、um, also struggled and fought for different kinds of spaces for themselves and created new roles. Right. So comparable to Chapter One, we had the soldier. Um, the salaryman, the modern samurai, and then the neats.、Um, with women in modern Japan, so we have the modern girl, the moga, and then we have the good mother, wife, wife、um, kind of role for them. And then more recently, I guess this、uh, ideal of the office lady, the OL. There's a lot of changes.、Um, For Japanese womanhood, but it's interesting that despite these struggles and transformation,、um, that women in modern Japan sort of made to define their、uh, womanhood, it seems that gender equality is still far from being achieved in contemporary Japan. In in your book, at the end of the chapter, you remind us with some really important data.、Uh, so Japan was ranked 165 out of 193 countries. Um, in the Women in Parliament report, and only 5.2 percent of board seats are held by women in Japan, compared to let's say 41 percent in Norway, 17.6 percent in the U.S. So that's a very very big difference.、Um, so why do you think this is the case? Well, I I think this is probably one of the most、uh, difficult questions. Uh, to answer, and、um, I want to begin by pointing out that when we look at the participation of women in boardrooms and political roles and and other kinds of leadership roles around the world, the differences are really really dramatic and it, among different countries, right? So it's not just that Japan ranks very far behind、um, most of the post-industrial liberal democracies around the world, but even within these,、uh, there are huge differences when we look at specific numbers. And so I think one of the Important ways to tease this apart is to really be critical about what is the public discourse. What、uh, do people in different places actually believe is the case, and what do the numbers show? And so, when one speaks with、uh, Japanese women today, of course, and one looks in 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 a much finer grained way at the advances. Uh, equality has、uh, made. Of course, there are huge advances, and of course, there are lots of women who actually are in leadership positions and who 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 live very different lives and、uh, who live very independent lives, independent from、uh, certain social norms. But then there are also some real static elements in at work. And one of them that、uh, women perceive to be very strong, even in contemporary Japan, is precisely what happens when they get married and have children. Okay, so whereas、uh, women in Japan pursue all kinds of careers, there's very very strong social pressure、uh, to do the. Marrying and the childbearing and the raising of children, in quotation marks, properly in a very normative kind of way, but it's not just values and norms. It's also, for instance, when we look at the、uh, tax schemes 
or legal kinds of possibilities. When we look at how households and incomes are taxed, one of the very interesting things one learns from that is that uh, depending on what kind of, uh, presumably we're looking at a household with a heterosexual couple, possibly with or without children, but on the way of having children, depending on what kind of work a woman pursues, it can be financially disadvantageous to continue to work in contrast to staying at home, simply because of how the household is taxed. Okay, So there's very little incentive for a whole lot of people and the women in those kinds of households uh, to work with relatively low salaries and then pay somebody to take care of the children, then in contrast to, to staying at home. So these are some of the things that are in place. And of course, uh, one of the things that we can observe in, in many societies, as soon as you have uh, female figures in public places that in part function as models, uh, things change uh, significantly. And so in Japan, that be- partly because such uh, women are so small in numbers, uh, the changes are also quite slow. And so one of the things I've said before, when we talked about the first chapter, when you look at the fact that there is paternal leave in place, it's legally provided for men, but then men report that, for instance, they feel there's strong pressure from the companies not to take the leave. Or uh, to give you another concrete example of one individual, uh, a politician, I forget which ministry he uh, led at the time he said this, but this is the son of former Prime Minister Koizumi. He and his wife had their first child, and he announced very, very cheerfully that, of course, he's going to take paternity leave. And then it turned out that he was talking about two weeks, two weeks of to leave. So, so many levels and so many places uh, in society are designed and constantly reinforced uh, in ways that turn women into the potential uh, stay-at-home mom when they become a mom, that uh, it's really hard for individual women to overcome that. And then we, of course, see, and this is not specific to Japan, it's probably or uh, as the numbers show, it's it's more dramatic in Japan. But there are some professional contexts that are really very masculinist in all kinds of ways, including uh, habitus, including work hours, including engagement with colleagues, including career paths. And of course, politics and higher level corporate environments are made in particular way that makes it very hard for women Uh, to crack that particular uh, glass ceiling. That said, of course, there are women also who who don't want to become those so similar to these men who work in incredible hours and have spent hardly any time outside of their workplaces. So we have a number of different forces uh, at work Uh, that uh, play into the continuation and the relative stability of this uh, inequality. And you only need to, you know, uh, remember the discussion around the Olympics and the Olympic leadership, organizational leadership. 
there was this one man who was in a leadership position of that who said, of course, there are few women among us because they uh, women tend to talk so much in meetings, for instance. And of course, he, he had to resign, right? He did have to resign. But comments like that are really only revealing the tip of the iceberg, as it were, of prejudice against women in leadership uh, roles. And so I think there are all kinds of uh, forces in place that maintain a relative status quo in gender inequality terms. Thank you. Yeah, that's a, I, I love how in your book, um, you have weaved in a lot of very, very recent events and recent occurrences to give us more concrete examples. Um, so moving on to a more, I guess, controversial topic, um, sex at war and sexual violence during the war. Uh, you remind us that as opposed to the common Japanese politicians' discourse, that sexual mass violence performed by the Japanese military, imperial military, was a mere glitch in military discipline. It was, in fact, systematic and part of Japan's imperialist war and empire building. Uh, so in other words, we can perhaps understand the Japanese empire as a sexual regime imposed by violence, like you argue in the chapter. Uh, so please tell us more about this really important point. How was violence, sex, war, and empire building linked? So for me, the question of sexual violence during war in the Japanese context presents itself as very, very interconnected. Um, and so in the, in the late 19th century, we have an understanding of male sexual desire uh, that is at work and in place and remains relatively stable far into the 20th century and, of course, feeds into the kinds of policies that govern sexuality and sexual violence uh, committed by soldiers in particular uh, during that long period of time. And I think this is really, really important to understand. And um, uh, that's why the, the kind of position you have um, described of some, of some government leaders in Japan over the course of time namely that sexual violence committed by soldiers is, is what's happening because of a, a lack of uh, discipline necessarily or a glitch in that uh, discipline. And that's really not true historically. Uh, we have leaders in Japan throughout the, the period and uh, up to the end of the Second World War um, share an understanding of male sexual desire with other military leaders around the world. And so I'm not saying here that these are all the same. Obviously, they are not. Uh, but it is striking that you have uh, Japanese military leaders uh, make very, very similar statements as American military leaders, as Nazi military leaders, uh, particularly in the 1930s and 1940s, that run roughly like this, namely that if soldiers are not provided with, and you can make different choices in terms of language here, not provided with the possibility of having sex in one way or another, they will do one of two things or both. One, 
they will randomly rape women wherever they encounter them. And uh, two, they will be less effective as fighters. Okay, and so that's a that's an understanding of sexuality in soldiers in particular uh, that governs uh, military organizations during that time. Um, and to some degree, that that is uh, still the case today in fighting armies. Um, obviously, is not as o- openly articulated, but at that time, it was very, very openly articulated by military leaders. And so to set this as a backdrop to the Asia-Pacific War in, in particular is important because uh, we have a lot of scholarship and a lot of writing about a particular phenomenon in the Japanese empire, namely the sexual slavery system. Um, the sexual slavery system um, in, in the Japanese terminology at the time, it was referred to as the comfort women system and I prefer sexual slavery here because comfort was, of course, only provided um, against uh, these women's will to the soldiers. The sexual slavery system came about um, in the 20th century, uh, That and, and sexual slavery here means that members of the Japanese military, uh, as well as civilian uh, individuals associated with the Japanese military, uh, including police in uh, in colonized areas, went out to kidnap girls and young women in Korea, in Manchuria, in Indonesia, in other parts of the Japanese Empire. So that's really what the sexual slavery system is. But that sexual slavery didn't sexual slavery system didn't begin. Uh, in these places and during this time. There was a much longer standing practice of sending Japanese women along with the Japanese military. And so one of the uh, contentious issues in that history is, of course, to say, well, these Japanese women went by their own free will and the women in the colonies that were kidnapped or under wrong wrong promises forced into sexual slavery, that's an entirely different thing, Um, which of course to some degree it is, um, but we should not forget that the Japanese women who went, um, who were sent with the troops um, abroad typically came out of very, very poor families very often were sold by their families uh, to recruiters that told them all kinds of stories about where they would be going. And so free will is a, is really the wrong concept uh, to apply here. And so um, we have a, a not complete clarity about how many uh, sexually abused women we're talking about. Uh, some scholars speak of 80,000, some speak of 200,000 women of various ethnic and national backgrounds and social circumstances uh, throughout the empire. Uh, but it's important to acknowledge that. Now, you mentioned in your question before that there's a a particular position among Japanese uh, politicians towards this. One of the interesting uh, things that um, I want to mention here is, of course, that the Japanese population always knew about the sexual slavery system. Uh, 
some of them always knew. And of course, the soldiers knew. And so it's it's a misconception to believe then for the post-war era uh, that this was only discovered later. But it is then at the beginning of the 1990s, uh, in 1993 to be precise, that a, a statement was formulated for the first time um, by then uh, Chief Cabinet Secretary Kono Yohe, and that's why it's called the Kono Statement. This statement in 1993 says, uh, acknowledges very, very explicitly that the, ja- that the Japanese imperial military had such sexual slavery stations, um, did force, force women and, and girls into these uh, stations, and that was acknowledged. And so subsequent administrations, actually as recently as former Prime Minister Abe Shinzo, when he and other uh, conservative and uh, reactionary political figures question whether these women were actually forced or suggest that they were paid, this is really a, a, a step back behind what the... Japanese government had already acknowledged more than 30 years ago, or actually quite precisely 30 years ago. And so we have lots and lots of Japanese government figures and government officials since the 1990s uh, confirm the Japanese war guilt and this particular kind of war crime. But then we also have figures such as Abe, that come back and say, well, do we really know that they were forced? So it's a back and forth, uh, really. The current um, prime minister has not uh, actually articulated any particular position on this, uh, clearly because uh, the government has other problems at the moment. Uh, But it will be interesting to see when the next government official uh, brings up this topic again and questions what we already have uh, historically documented and acknowledged, uh, obviously, by historians and political figures. Now, one of the things that is really, really interesting in terms of the legacy of that system is that precisely because the Japanese government has been wobbly around that particular its particular position over the years. Um, eventually, in 2011, a couple of artists in Korea named Kim uh, So-kyung and Kim Un-sung uh, designed a statue of peace. Uh, this is also often referred to as a comfort women's as a comfort women's statue. Um, originally, this uh, statue was uh, put in front of the Japanese embassy in Seoul. Uh, but since then, and this is uh, really, really uh, remarkable, in the just in the 10 years or so since then, replica of this particular statue have been erected around the world uh, in a number of different places. The place I mention in the book is, in fact, in Berlin. Uh, the bronze statue of peace in Berlin was put there. And um, in the in the German context, of course, when the statue uh, was put up and uh, inaugurated, 
and there's a number of different uh, organizations involved. Uh, they're, they're representatives of the Korean population in Berlin, but they're also, as one might expect, uh, representatives of concentration camps involved. And so these are organizations today that come together in part to commemorate the sexual violence committed by the Japanese military in Asia, but in part also uh, to commemorate uh, sexual violence committed by other militaries, in this case, of course, the German wartime military, um, and to really work to ensure uh, that such violence never be committed again by militaries or other organizations. And so we have, instead of what uh, people like uh, former Prime Minister Abe desired, namely to silence uh, that kind of conversation and to question the historical, a historical fact, instead a global move to make that visible as one of the most horrible crimes against humanity of the of the 20th century. Let's talk about um, the politics of sexual labor, uh, which is the topic in, in chapter five. Here you walk us through the various manifestations of and shifting attitudes towards sex work in modern Japan. Um, and you also tell us here in the chapter that today, Japan is actually home to one of the world's largest sexual industries within and even larger markets for eroticized intimacy, uh, despite Japan having the prostitution prevention law. Um, so this is quite in interesting. So who are the laborers in modern Japan sex industries and what economies do they cater to? So when you when you um, recount the history of the uh, or the content of the entire chapter, of course, um, the answer to this question is is very the answer to the question varies a great deal. But in the late nineteenth century, what one of the interesting things um, then was that prostitution uh, was organized as a segregated kind of. Uh, prostitution in uh, so-called pleasure quarters or entertainment districts. And so during that time, uh, prostitution was legal as long as uh, the women in question were associated with a particular establishment, a tea house, for instance, or a brothel, and was registered as a prostitute. So uh, one uh, should imagine a young woman coming from the countryside, perhaps with the intention to support her family. Typically, that was uh, given as a reason to engage in sex work at the time. And um, registering herself uh, at the local police station, this, by the way, is the same police that at that time also recorded pregnancies and childbirths and so on. So we have a function of the police that is very deeply embedded in medical, in uh, social control uh, matters that, of course, are unimaginable in today's Japan and most other societies. But at that time, Japan had adopted the, the Prussian system of a medical police, where the police had many more functions 
and um, had authority over many more parts of individuals' lives than is the case later on. Uh, so a young woman would register herself as a prostitute, and she could do that if she had a good explanation for why she wanted to. And as I just mentioned, the most common one was, of course, that this young woman felt that uh, selling sex was the only way uh, to reasonably support her family, perhaps to save the family household or business, perhaps to allow a brother uh, to go to, on to secondary school or any of these things. Um, and so one, as one might imagine, uh, women during that time who came to the cities to work in uh, the entertainment district as sex workers were coming from typically poor families, often uh, from rural Japan. Now, I've said women as if sex workers were always only women. That's, of course, not the case. Uh, we know of uh, young men and boys engaging in sex work during the time as well. But the interesting thing is that the state, uh, the lawmakers, were only interested in regulating the kind of prostitution that involved heterosexual sex and thus regulating uh, the women who engaged in such sex for money. It's only in, and then of course, not all women who sold sex were also registered prostitutes. So we must imagine, of course, a much diverse, much more diverse uh, scene here than the laws suggest. Uh, but in any case, these were the legal uh, prostitutes. It's only at the beginning of the 20th century, around 1910, 1911, when a number of uh, social reformers begin to campaign for the uh, criminalization of prostitution. And they do so unsuccessfully. There's uh, a lot of Christian impetus uh, behind that. These are the same uh, campaigners who are also um, for other kinds of regulations that um, would uh, separate, uh, that would sort of uh, establish uh, households in a kind of, along a kind of Christian uh, morality. And of course, um, they remain unsuccessful in part because it was fairly normal for men who could afford it to both be married and have a household and have children, uh, but for entertainment purposes or in, in other kinds of contexts to also uh, visit the pleasure quarters and to also potentially or in reality buy sex. And so there was very little interest from the political class uh, to actually make prostitution illegal. Um, that only happened after the war in 1956. And you've already mentioned the um, act that was put into place in 1956. The Allied, Allied occupation ended in 1952. Um, and so it was only a few years after that that um, a number of congresswomen pursued, first pursued, and then managed to pass the prostitution prevention law. 
it's this particular law that uh, remains in place today. There are a lot of other laws that also govern prostitution and sex work in one way or another. For instance, the laws that that um, uh, control what children and youth can do or cannot do, uh, and all kinds of other uh, laws as well. But the prostitution prevention law is at the core of this. The reason why, or not the reason why, but, uh, but uh, at least one reason why, despite of this particular law, uh, there is a lot of prostitution and sex work in Japan available today is in part because that law defines prostitution very narrowly, namely in terms of payment for the act of penile vaginal coitus. Okay. So when we talk about, um, when I write in this chapter about various establishments that provide sex for payment, um, the understanding is, and this would, this is what um, the practitioners, so to speak, would then argue, is they do all kinds of things, all kinds of sexual things, all kind, uh, apply all kinds of uh, practices to provide sexual satisfaction, except for uh, penile vaginal coitus. Now, whether that's going on or not is, of course, uh, a different question, but that's how the law defines prostitution. And so it stipulates punishment for the following offenses, public solicitation of prostitution, procurement of prostitution, forced or an attempt to force prostitution, offering or receiving compensation for another's prostitution and the provision or management of a place of prostitution, which all, as as I'm sure you will agree, sound like the right kind of things that would be in place if a lawmaker didn't want prostitution to be legal. But again, the, the definition of the actual sexual act that is covered by that is very, very narrow. And so uh, even when the law was put into place, there was some resistance, of course, both by all kinds of people across the political class and in society, but also to some degree uh, by prostitutes themselves. And that had very much to do with alternative possibilities of employment. So one of the, by and large, at least, uh, continuities across the period I'm looking at in this book with respect to the question who actually performs sex work has to do with the relatively higher income that comes with sex work, at least uh, to Uh, to a lot of them, then with alternative ways of labor, particularly of women who are undereducated and um, don't have the kind of training that would allow them to pursue other careers. I think that is sort of the the basic through line through the entire time I'm describing here. And, um, And so in today's Japan, we have a lot of other uh, legal restrictions. Um, For instance, the law regulating entertainment businesses and uh, the Child Welfare Act and all kinds of other laws. But that has done very little uh, to eliminate um, prostitution and to eliminate establishments uh, that provide uh, sex for sale in contemporary Japan 
uh, to this very day. But the the uh, market is very much diversified, and so uh, scholars like Gabriele Koch, for instance, who wrote a fantastic book about sex work in Japan, um, uh, shows very clearly. And I I give a very uh, compressed uh, overview and description of that um, uh, in my book uh, that we have a lot of different ways um, and different places where women sell sex of various kinds. Um, the AIDS crisis of the 1980s, particularly in the late 80s, um, has, of course, had initially a big impact on um, on the sex industry in Japan, but not as massively as in other places precisely uh, because of the longstanding practice that I've mentioned earlier with respect to a different chapter of the use of condoms. And so that's very, very uh, prominent in Japan. And one of the things that actually is very interesting in the contemporary uh, context and Koch have written, has written about them. Uh, Barreñas at, at the University of Southern California has written about that. Is the dis- discussion in contemporary Japan about the the criminalization of sex work, uh, particularly when we speak about uh, international sex workers, immigrant sex workers who uh, come from very poor. Uh, families and households in their origin uh, countries. There is, of course, a continuing tension between a a sort of activist impulse to uh, save the sex workers, to uh, suppress prostitution or criminalize prostitution, and the very real limitations on poor women's possibility to uh, engage in gainful employment that is very much uh, at work in this conversation to this very day. Um, and so the with respect to the Japanese conversation, when, when Koch, for instance, interviewed sex workers, um, often they speak not so much in terms of them selling sex or engaging in prostitution, but to provide active, affective, and intimate, restorative kind of services. And so sex workers in Japan, to some degree, also believe in being very much part of a capitalist society that is designed, in her their part then, is designed uh, to restore a kind of healthy and male uh, productivity. And so uh, we have overlapping uh, discourses and different kinds of understanding what exactly sex work does and what makes the sex worker a sex worker uh, potentially not as all that different from many other uh, professions that primarily females engage in. Of course, this is a very contentious and uh, problematic uh, kind of position, but it's definitely at work in the Japanese uh, discussion. It's interesting that you mentioned in this chapter that, um, and, and also in previous chapters, that the state 
in modern Japan seems to be very interested in regulating or defining or sort of intervening heteronormative sex. Um, and there seems to be a more kind of, I guess, uh, ambiguous space for other kinds of sexual practices. So in chapter six, uh, Queer Identities and Activism, you remind us that Japan actually has a longstanding embrace of gender ambivalence. So does this mean that uh, queer communities historically in Japan have enjoyed more freedom? Um, What were some of the struggles that they have to go through since the 20th century um, in in terms of fighting for, for rights and spaces? That's a very uh, difficult question, of course, but um, in, in the Japanese context, um, if we look at the history of queer identities and activisms, I think one of the really, really interesting continuities is one that you just articulated, namely the fact that in modern and contemporary Japan, with the exception of a brief period in the late 19th century, homosexuality in particular and other kinds of sexuality were never explicitly uh, criminalized. Okay, So when we think about that, and when we particularly think about the enormous and violent and harmful um, to many individuals uh, struggle in other countries, in, in including... Uh, the United States and uh, many countries in Europe to actually make legal non-heterosexual activities. Uh, One would easily be fooled to think that that means non-heterosexual individuals in Japan um, had nothing to worry about. And um, that unfortunately is not true. So we have a very different matrix here at work, namely uh, of social norms. Okay, so um, similar to my chapter on uh, defining womanhoods, where uh, social norms do a lot of work uh, to discourage women from pursuing certain uh, careers or certain paths, uh, life uh, paths. In the, in the context of queer and LGBT identities and and activisms, social norms do a lot of work of perhaps not so much suppressing such, but to make them over long stretches of time uh, relatively invisible. Now, the um, uh, gender ambivalence you refer to, one of the articulations that I really love and I begin the chapter with is from an early 20th century cultural critic uh, named Miyatake Gaikotsu. And he wrote and and published a magazine that was called uh, Humor Magazine, Kokke Shimbun. And when you read that and read about him, you realize that he must have constantly teased the censorship authorities, constantly uh, tried to push the boundaries of what he could say and what he could write just to stay out of prison. And not he was not always successful. He went to prison uh, quite a few times for either making political statements or making statements that were considered in violation of public morals. 
And so one of the things he did in 1922, he published a collection of stories uh, that was uh, called Hananokyo, or Thoughts on Hermaphroditism. And in that collection, he proposed the following. I quote here, won't the hermaphrodites that are today called abnormalities someday come to call single sex men and women abnormalities? So, of course, this was scandalous and and uh, dramatic to make such a statement at the time. But he was, of course, operating within an urban culture uh, of the early 20th century uh, that were not ruled, perhaps, but in many ways aesthetically uh, governed by such phenomena as the modern girl and the modern boy. And while when we look at um, figures of the modern girl and the modern boy today, right, they strike us as a new fashion, their outfits and their styles and so on. Um, But at that time, they were signaling uh, first of all, a sexuality that was not necessarily uh, normative. Uh, there were all kinds of speculations and criticisms associated with these individuals uh, that uh, suggested all kinds of uh, sexual escapades. And then they were also suspected to possibly not grow out. And that's, of course, another modern discourse, right? The, particularly among girls, the assumption was, well, maybe they had romantic relations with other girls, but surely when they grew up, they would grow out of that. Um, and so uh, Guy Kotsu was operating in an urban environment where there were lots of manifestations of non-normative uh, sexual identities and a lot of criticism and public discourse about them, uh, particularly with respect to what does that mean for Japanese society at large? And when he said hermaphroditism or hermaphrodites, he was also not the person who came up with that term in Japanese, but that was a discourse uh, and and at, at the time across different kinds of magazines and uh, other kinds of writings. And what is interesting about that is that what exactly constituted hermaphroditism or what we would call intersex today was um, described in a whole range of different ways. And so that's why I'm very self-consciously in in the chapter and in my other writings as well, Um, conveying here that at the beginning of the 20th century, even though we have these new terms, some of them coming out of the medical profession and the psychiatric profession, um, there was a great fluidity of different terms that were used. Uh, There was no clarity or agreement among experts or other uh, writers, including cultural and social critics, what exactly uh, marked one body as an hermaphrodite. Uh, people thought, oh, this is psychological. Others thought it's physical, um, whether one is born with a particular uh, body or identity or uh, psyche or emotional state. All of this could be um, what in our terms today 
uh, could be uh, described as LGDB plus. And so even though, of course, uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and or questioning intersex, asexual, agender uh, with a plus at the end is something that uh, we feel is very new and current and a sign of our ever more progressive uh, society. It was all there at the beginning of the 20th century, just in different terms. And so that's how I how I begin the chapter. Now, you asked about, well, was there more freedom around these uh, identities? I think in broad strokes, definitely there was more freedom in Japan, historically and in the modern period, than in other, many other societies. Um, but that doesn't mean freedom and sexual rights in the terms we speak about such uh, today. And so, for instance, when in the 1920s, 1930s, this was a pursuit of hers uh, for several decades, uh, one of Japan's first out lesbian writers uh, by the name of Yoshia Nobuko wrote in the in an, in in her novels. Um, she wrote a very nice um, novel called *Women's Friendship*, *Onna no Yujo*, and it was serialized in many other works. Basically, said, uh, "I'm in love with another woman, and I will make it my life's work." Uh, to legalize same-sex marriage. Just imagine that, 1930s, okay? She said that, she pursued that. Um, she wasn't successful, um, but she was very outspoken about um, the necessity not just to live as a same-sex couple, uh, but also to gain the right uh, to be legally married. Um, so that's uh, perhaps the beginning that was relatively inconsequential in legal terms, because of course that wasn't put into place then. Uh, but I think is uh, definitely a sign that these conversations uh, were around and some individuals, including Yoshia, uh, were uh, courageous enough uh, to articulate uh, that. Now, uh, the 1920s and 30s, of course, are also in other places around the world, particularly in Europe, uh, the uh, high time of sexology, of uh, the uh, campaigns to legalize homosexuality in particular, and so on and so forth. Um, now, in the Japanese context, of course, one of the things that is really, really important to keep in mind is that Japan has a long pre-modern tradition of same-sex, male same-sex, and Gregory Flugfelder has written about that uh, in, in a wonderful book. Um, but th this doesn't translate very well into the modern era. And so, and it also doesn't translate very well into the world of females, okay? Um, so when um, some decades later, um, an, an, a very uh, flamboyant uh, kind of individual named, by the name of Togo Ken 
promotes, you know, same-sex marriage, uh, no, uh, not same-sex marriage, but same-sex cultural expression and lives, and particularly the notion of there being more than two sexes and more than two genders. This seems in in the Japanese context both radical as well as a continuation of earlier traditions. So in the Japanese context, it's really interesting that throughout the 20th century and to this very day, and um, uh, this is fascinating, I think, both individuals on the, uh, you know, both progressive individuals that pursue uh, sexual rights, equality in sexual rights uh, to this very day, and individuals on the reactionary right uh, such as former Prime Minister Abe, for instance, refer to Japan's history as a, a history of uh, as a as a tradition of, and in Abe ter- Abe's terms, great tolerance towards uh, same sex sexuality. But but what does that mean uh, for actual individuals uh, who identify as LGBT? It's tricky because on the one hand, many in in contemporary Japan, right? In on the one hand, uh, there are many municipalities and regional governments in Japan that have legalized uh, same-sex marriage and um, uh, uh, sex reassignment surgery is legal as well today. But on the other hand, uh, it's not nationwide, and that's in part because. Uh, people like uh, Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Abe, when he was still Prime Minister, said, well, in Japan, we've always had a great tolerance towards uh, non-heteronormative sexuality. So we don't need a special law that uh, gives anybody uh, the same sexual rights because we already uh, think that this is uh, perfectly fine. And so we have um, um, an interesting use of Japanese history uh, in with respect uh, to LGBT uh, identities and um, activisms here. I should also say that the older generation of LGBT activists in contemporary Japan do recall that the feminist movement of the 1970s for instance, was not uh, particularly sympathetic uh, to lesbians, gays, and um, other non-heteronormative individuals in Japan. So, But in contemporary Japan, we have a number of out uh, politicians in public places, very visible, um, and I think the general move goes into the right direction. One of... um, the interesting aspects, however, that point into into a more conservative direction, however, has to do precisely with uh, sex uh, reassignment surgery, and that is that that one can in Japan change and undergo uh, all uh, procedures and surgeries and so on and so forth, and then become a man or a woman, um, but the law prescribes that one has to do so uh, in a complete kind of fashion. So the law does not say 
you can do to your sexual gender uh surface identity body uh whatever you want the law says if you feel you are born in the wrong body you have to become the other body so as a female you have to take on all the uh characteristics of a male you have to become uh, an individual that looks like a man in very, very conventional kinds of terms. And so that's the bind here. And when uh, people do that in Japan, they have to be diagnosed with um, gender dysphoria and with gender identity disorder. And then they can have that kind of surgery. But And lots of people uh, embrace that and see themselves as suffering from something they need to be healed from. But a lot of people, of course, don't. Um, don't want to go undergo uh, surgeries that are very, very invasive and serious surgeries and who do not feel that they want to become uh, simply the other conventional version of the other uh, sex. And so that's uh, the situation in Japan right now. But uh, one of the promising aspects um, towards uh, or on the path to greater uh, sexual and gender equality is, of course, that the marketplace, the capitalist economy, be it for events, be it restaurants, be it other kinds of uh, companies, have already recognized LGBT communities as a potential market. And so there are different forces at place uh, at work. Uh, they're, they're both uh, really conservative elements and pockets and very progressive uh, movements at the same time. And um, I think there's a lot of reason to be hopeful uh, that things are moving into the right direction. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, I guess we'll have to see and hope for the best. Um, chapter seven, which is the, the, the last chapter before the epilogue, uh, we turn to, um, arts and visual culture. And it's, so the title of the chapter is called sexing visual culture. Um, here you go through, um, the history of visual culture in modern Japan. And we, uh, get into discussions of erotic wood block prints, uh, films, arts, uh, um, sculpture, um, even video games. So what do these visual cultures portray and silence? What are some of the common themes, um, reoccurring themes and topics? And also what do they sort of serve to function um, from the early 20th century up to contemporary Japanese society? Yeah, that too was really a fun chapter to write in part uh, <laughs> in part because um, of the long period of time it covers and also, of course, because of the very different media that are covered here. And of course, that's also one of the dangers in writing such a chapter that one, you know, leaves behind the concerns of experts of art and visual culture that are, of course, very distinct uh, when talking about woodblock prints of the 19th century uh, or video games of the 20, 21st century and and some of the art, uh, activist art in particular in between. 
Um, the way I have approached this is in part to look at um, erotic or sexual visual culture precisely with the questions in mind that you just articulated. Who is this for? What is it for? Who is interested in limiting access? Who gets pleasure out of it? And what are the perhaps social and political messages that are feared within uh, those erotic expressions beyond um, what individuals get out of it uh, by watching these. Um, and so I begin with a woodblock print on which there is a poem that is a rendering from a kabuki interlude that was not sexual in nature and uh, some anonymous uh, poet, I suppose, has re-articulated that poem uh, to give it sexual content. Um, my understanding, and this is in part, of course, informed by the experts on these woodblock prints and the poetry and the games that are involved with them, uh, including the scholars like Sepp Linhardt, who has studied uh, the Ken game, the rocks, paper, scissor game, scissors game that uh, lends itself to these poems. Um, one of the things that is really crucial, I think, for understanding these is that erotic woodblock prints uh, historically could carry not just erotic or sexual messages, they could also carry political messages. And they were also often the object of laughter. So if you had, if you read the poem, for instance, you would um, associate it with its original. Uh, you might find the particular sexual activities laughable uh, because they were absurd or because they were, seemed um so unnatural in unnatural places or in inconvenient places, for instance, and so on and so forth. So when we think about erotic visual culture of the late 19th century and early 20th century, uh, there are lots of things associated with them that one would probably not think about if one thought only of uh, current day erotic visual culture or pornography. One of them, as I said, was politics. And so some of these woodblock prints would dress individuals involved in a particular sexual act uh, to be recognizable as people of different classes, for instance. That was a political statement that uh, was problematic. Or one would um, have a particular configuration of individuals that seemed laughable uh, to people at the time. Um, and so there's a lot to say about these woodblock prints um, that um, is interesting here. And of course, even contemporary visual artists to some degree reference woodblock print either techniques or uh, motifs to sort of uh, signal uh, to Japanese uh, visual tradition in their work when they create erotic or uh, pornographic visual culture today.
What to me is then uh, particularly interesting is, of course, um, a film that um, caused enormous outcry. Uh, uh, censorship has been discussed as being injurious, injurious to uh, public morals and uh, prompted uh, a scholar by the name of Kirsten Cather uh, to write about it as a particular case of censorship. And that is, of course, in the realm of the census, a film by Oshima Nagahisa. Um, to me, the film is very meaningful in part because I've taught about uh, the history of sexuality in Japan for more than 20 years. And in my early uh, classes, I still screened that film and had discussions about that film. And um, I don't do that anymore. And it seems like in our current moment, um, it has become much more difficult to... Uh, for students to dissociate their own experience and their own historical moment from a an interpretation of a historical uh, story. And so, um, as you know, of course, there's a lot of uh, conversation about trigger warnings and about uh, showing or discussing certain materials in the classroom. Um, and of course, uh, in the realm of the census is a typical example of that. There's a lot of humor in it. Uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, sex in it. There's also sexual violence in it. Um, but when I originally uh, adopted the film for uh, teaching, what interested me is precisely the sort of slightly claustrophobic uh, development of a particular uh, sexual relationship that was clearly uh, exclusively sexual and exclusively erotic, and that was very much counter to uh, the morals of their time, both the historical setting as well as uh, the time in which the film was made um, and first screened. Um, but that also put, and this is, of course, uh, I think very, very interesting in the, in the context of Japanese history, that put a woman in the position of somebody who is uh, entirely dominated by her sexual desires. And of course, uh, as many listeners will know, at the end of the story uh, that is based on an actual uh, event and actual people, um, the woman in her excitement, in her ecstasy, uh, the female protagonist cuts off the testicles and the penis of her lover um, and runs away with them and then becomes this, this very prominent case uh, that is studied in all kinds of ways by medical doctors, by psychiatrists, by criminologists, because the experts of her time cannot understand how a woman could possibly be so carried away by her sexual desires. After all, this is a time when experts and lots of other uh, people imagine women's sexuality be entirely governed by the desire to have children. And the emphasis is very much on the understanding that males have sexual desires and they pursue them. Uh, and women sort of tacitly accept um, their pursuit 
because of the desire to have children. And so here you have a figure who has nothing to do with that understanding of female sexuality. And so um, she is here um, a protagonist in a small section of this chapter, but particularly the case against uh, the film and the script in particular. Um, And so the film, um, the case uh, of censorship uh, of the script of the film and a particular um, kind of documentation of it lends itself very, very nicely to understanding what censorship authorities really have in mind when they censor in the 70s. And very interestingly, it is the assumption of what kind of pictures appear in a reader's mind when reading the script uh, to the film. It's not about what the film actually shows. Uh, So I thought that was very interesting, and it was also in the chapter, it forms a very nice counterpoint, I thought, uh, two more contemporary concerns about censoring art, uh, visual culture that is sexual in content, uh, particularly um, with respect to the art of Aida Makoto, uh, whose exhibition in the Mori Museum caused a huge... um, response, negative response, but that response, very, very different from the censorship authorities around in the realm of the census, is associated not so much with what people might imagine when they look at a particular uh, piece of visual culture or art, but how to protect children from what they see, these activists see in that art, okay? And so these activists make no distinction between a massive exploitation of female sexuality and female bodies in mainstream uh, Japanese culture and the exhibition of particular art uh, pieces, paintings and such in a museum. And of course, one, you know, depending on, on how one looks at it, of course, both are positions that that are reasonable in, in many different ways. But this is the question uh, for artists such as Aida Makoto in the contemporary moment. It's not about what exactly does a viewer imagine in response. It's about what is to be seen and how does that damage uh, particularly a young person's mind um, as a result. Um, and so along the question of censorship, I think this is this is very uh, interesting to me. But uh, the chapter also gave me the opportunity to uh, include a couple of uh, feminist artists' work that I've known for a long time. Um, one is uh, Shimada Yoshiko and Bubu de la Madeleine, um, who uh, critique in their work uh, some of of the exploitation of uh, females uh, for sexual services um, that I've already mentioned. Um, I met uh, Bubu in the 1990s 
in Tokyo when she was um, an activist for sex workers um, and a sex worker herself. Um, and then the other artist that I thought was also really interesting is actually the first uh, Japanese artist whose work got uh, uh, who 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 had to pay a fine uh, for violating Japan's uh, censorship law, and that is an artist uh, by the name of Rokude Nashiko, uh, which translates as "good for nothing girl." Um, and I've communicated, of course, with all of these artists because they were generous enough uh, to give me permission to print uh, their work. Rokude Nashko did something really interesting and amazing that it caused this particular outcry. Um, she did a 3D uh, model of her vulva and built both little figurines uh, of of which I have three in various colors based on that. But she also uh, produced a kayak, uh, a regular size kayak based on uh, the model of her vulva and paddled down Tama River in Tokyo. And so, um, and she got a lot of publicity and, um, and so on. And whereas Aida Makoto is very ambiguous about what exactly he does in his art. Uh, there are lots of girls in his art, uh, and some of them in various uh, stages of being uh, killed. Uh, Roku Denashko is very clear and uh, certain about what her intention is with this uh, these particular objects uh, among her much larger herbre. And that is uh, very simply put that she produced these uh, pieces and and publicized them in order to take back uh, female genitals, um, um, uh, the vulva in particular, precisely from the kind of sexualized mainstream culture of which there is a lot in Japan. And so her art is very much explicitly directed against mainstream pornography, against mainstream the mainstream sexualization of female bodies. Um, and so that's the stance uh, she takes uh, with her art. And clearly that was not very well received. Um, at her court case, um, one of Japan's more prominent art historians was uh, called as an expert witness. And in the end, she didn't have to pay a large fine, but she still had to pay a fine for that. Um, and of course, the, the, the exact violation was sort of uh, turned into a, into a um, matter of has she... Uh, solicited financial support for her art that is in itself uh, a violation of the obscenity laws. Uh, so it was sort of an, an odd kind of charge in the end, uh, but at least she very clearly um, and, and, the, and the public, the, the press very clearly interpreted that as um, a conservative backlash against a feminist 
uh, expression uh, feminist artist uh, and her work here. Yeah, those uh, figurines of her vulva are really cute. <laughs> really cute kind of um, pieces of activist art. Uh, I'm glad you have three of them. Right. And, and yeah, no, no. And no, no. And, and this is actually very interesting because she taps it. The conversation I had with her was very, I was describing this as she's tapping into the kind of mainstream cute culture, right? These figurines are cute things. They're not looking aggressive or, or uh, political per se, and, and sort of repurposes uh, the, um, the prevalence of cute culture in Japan. And, um, and so I, I thought that was a really uh, smart and interesting way to address uh, sexualization of women. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, in, in contrast to um, to the portrayal of women and women's sexuality, or sexual women as sort of monstrosity, um, mm-hmm. it's a very smart move. Yeah. Um, and the last chapter, uh, the epilogue, provides a really, really helpful analysis of the historical study of sex, gender, and sexuality in Japan. I think it's going to be helpful for anybody who's interested in modern Japan. Um, in your opinion, so what are the sort of scholarly strongholds and uh, the blind spots in the field? What are some of the questions that need um, or deserve more investigation, in your opinion? My uh, my perspective on this question comes, of course, uh, out of my much earlier work on the history of sexology. And so I've looked at, uh, for this chapter, I've tried to trace when do we have particular moments where things shift or when interests move from one place to another or when questions uh, become reframed or displaced into different contexts. Uh, and, and I've done this, uh, or at least I've tried to do this for all of the chapters. The, uh, they, the chapters are not uh, proper chronologically narrated uh, stories, uh, but I focus in each chapter on uh, critical moments of the history that I try to tell. And in the epilogue, of course, that story uh, begins with the um, uh, around 1900 when uh, ethnology is perhaps the leading framework, the leading methodology that um, approaches sexual behavior and sexual traditions in Japan. So it's really ethnology that first speaks about sexuality in Japan, both uh, by Japanese ethnologists, of course, and also by uh, international uh, visitors who are fascinated by Japanese uh, sexual culture, um, in part because they misinterpret or misunderstand or misread things, in part because uh, in actuality, it appears so very different to the cultures they come from. Um, and we're talking here, of course, about uh, individuals who come from Christian uh, societies, individuals, in, some of which were, some of whom were um, uh, homosexual in societies where homosexuality was a crime. Um, And so they come to Japan and see this very different kind of sexual order um, with with the caveat, of course, as some Japanese contemporaries point out, that they 
misinterpret some uh, things they think they see. Um, and then um, at the same time, we also have the beginning of what is probably a history of women, and then eventually in the post-Second World War era, of course, the beginnings of women's studies in the 70s in particular, uh, that is uh, goes hand in hand uh, with the feminist movement, women's lib, uh, liberation movement of the 70s. Um, and then in contemporary Japan, um, they're uh, the, the sort of guiding, uh, or let's say the place where most new work comes out of is certainly concerns about LGBT plus uh, communities. Now, you asked about where are the blind spots. Um, I have, because of my own lack of loyalty to a particular discipline or methodology, I tend to read widely topically rather than uh, within disciplines necessarily. And one of the things I've uh, definitely noticed in the study with, re with respect of the studies to sex, gender, and sexuality, uh, actually two things I would like to mention. One is the persistent lack of interest in better understanding manhood and masculinity. This, of course, has to do with the history of gender studies in particular, um, but that's why, to me, the very early interest in sexuality that was so focused on ethnology, on, on um, religious uh, monuments, on stone phalli and things like that is so interesting because as I somewhat tongue-in-cheek call this one section at the beginning, the penis, um, that was really the case. Uh, but then with the critical study of uh, sex and uh, sexuality and gender, um, in more recent generations of scholars, uh, we sort of get used to the understanding uh, in, the, in the late 20th century that gender is really women and women is really, you know, uh, uh, women's studies and feminism. Um, and so, uh, of course, we have moved on from that uh, understanding and and there's an increasing particularly young generation of scholars who uh, does a lot of very very interesting scholarship in the LGBT studies queer studies area but what we have not accomplished still um, and what has not received the kind of attention that I think we need uh, to have in order to really facilitate a change of the sexual order is the study of masculinity. Uh, men and masculinity are still to a large degree within the Japan field, um, but um, more generally as well, uh, understudied. And I mean by that not just um, the study of manhood and masculinity in the history field, uh, but also in other disciplines um, with which we approach modern and contemporary Japan. The other, the other lack, I think, the other area where I wish um, more scholars would um, involve themselves with is um, the following. So in the 
I think since the 1990s, when Japanese popular culture became sort of the ruling culture around the world of a young generation of people. And now, of course, we have uh, Korean popular culture and other kinds of popular culture. But when Japan, uh, Japanese popular culture became the thing, a lot of scholars who were interested in gender and sexuality did very um, engaging and important work in gender and sexuality in popular culture, in anime, in manga, in film, uh, and more recently in video games. Um, and that's all uh, important, and um, I love to use it in my teaching and so on. But what we have far less of is how actual people um, approach their sexual lives and how they think about their sexual lives and so on and so forth. And what I mean by that is really a more anthropological and more sociological um, approach to sexuality in Japan. Um, for instance, we have hardly any scholarship on sex education, for instance. What do teachers actually teach in Japan when they teach sex education? Uh, we have very little in terms of uh, post-1990s understanding of sexuality and uh, different kinds of international, transnational encounters. Uh, Karen Kelsky wrote a very interesting book about 20 years ago that's called Women on the Verge. We have other books uh, about um, uh, encounters of Filipina and Japanese, but there's very little in that area that actually concerns uh, flesh and blood uh, people in Japan, whereas we have a very solid body of scholarship now of sex, gender, and sexuality in popular culture. So I would like to see a little bit more of um, history, of course, but also of anthropology and sociology engaging with these um, topics. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for sharing those insights with us. Um, I think we've taken up a lot of your time already. Thank you so much for sharing your book, um, all of these wonderful uh, ideas and insights and arguments um, that you are sharing with us within the chapters. Uh, but before we let you go, we have one final question. Um, tell us a little bit about what you're working on right now. Uh, what is, and also what is one kind of recent uh, book, academic or not, um, that you would recommend to our listeners? Ah, very nice. Um, uh, what I'm working on right now is one of my favorite moments in a project, namely Complete Messy, um, all over the place. And who knows what this is going to turn into. One of the great joys in my mind of, of scholarship in the fields I care about is precisely this, um, where one is confused about what is exactly the question, uh, what is exactly the, the book or article or um, text that I'm going to write on the basis of this. Um, to, to give you a more um, a, a clearer answer, though, I believe I am returning to what originally triggered my dissertation and my first book, and that was 
really not so much an interest in sexuality only, but an interest in the history of the body. Um, I, I, I then shrunk that idea to the history of sexology because I realized that I, there has to be a, an end to the project uh, before I die. And so um, it's, it's sort of a smaller version of what I, us- what I initially had in mind. Uh, in any case, um, what I'm currently looking into is um, practices and businesses of immortality. And what I mean by that is um, what I see as a shift over that period that I've made my favorite period in my writing uh, between, let's say, late 19th century and uh, the beginning of the 21st century. Um, the beginning uh, beginning in the late 19th century, um, I, I think, technologies of modernity and science intertwine body, nation, and empire. And so, of course, what I write a little bit about the military physical exam is one expression of that. And these technologies furthered the scientification of pretty much everything and aimed for ever more exact quantifications, um, be it of male suitability for military service, females' fertility cycles, the growth of children's bodies, um, constructs of literacy and leisure activities, technologies of war making, you name it. This data revolution multiplied the effective instruments for the formation and accumulation of empirical and imperial knowledge, uh, was deeply invested in acceleration, progress, and the future. And so this is important here. Late 19th century is really the beginning when the state, It's there's a reason why statistics is called statistics, because it is the state that produces these enormous bodies of quantifi- quantifications. But in contrast, at the beginning of the 21st century, we encounter a very different Japan, a demographically stagnating population that has, and this is sort of the idea, uh, that has turned to the businesses of immortality. There, there, there are businesses that produce life-size figures of you in your most celebrated moments. Let's say women would have a, a, a company produce a doll that is their size in their wedding dress, or uh, grandparents would produce uh, a child in their, would, would have a a doll version of a child in their school uniform because they want to remember the moment of when they entered school. Or uh, mothers uh, would have a doll produced of a baby uh, So because of they want to remember the moment of the baby being a baby as opposed to becoming a grown-up. Um, and so I, I refer to this as the businesses of immortality which I see as a concept deeply imbricated with uh, the reactionary conservatism of sentimentality and nostalgia um, that is intent to preserve the past rather than forging a future. And so what I'm interested in is when my, my previous work was very much looking forward and looking at all these activities and practices that were envisioning a future if we only 
better understood the present, better quantified the present, for instance. And here I see a moment in Japan that is, uh, in fact, not doing that, but constitutes manifestations of the desire to manipulate time by both remembering, so it's backward, uh, and extending life. So when you have a doll of yourself, it's uh, a, a, a kind of way to to extend your life because the doll at least will live forever unless somebody destroys it. So as you can see from this rambling, um, it's still a very amorphous beast, uh, but I hope eventually it will turn into something um, that I can put into writing. Wow. Wow. Well, this is so fascinating and really exciting. Thank you so much for, you know, sharing uh, your wonderful work, amazing work on all things gender and also, of course, modern Japan. And thank you for taking your time out of your busy schedule to talk to us. And I hope to see you on the channel again very soon for your next book. Oh, thank you so much. Um, it was wonderful to speak to you. <laughs>